at this point is where we're going to pick up. Stephen has been martyred. Uh, it mentions Saul in the first three verses, uh, who we're going to get to in, in a week or two. I'm sure you know where that one goes. Um, but now we're going to look at Philip and some of the things that happen as he goes on his way. So starting in verse 4, going through verse 25. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him for the least of, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he pro proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he, he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that, I, that, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God." Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the hearts, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replies, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us, this time that we can gather together and we can look at your word. We can look at these uh, wonderful stories from the early church and see the, the amazing things that you did. And we can also see an example of what to do and what not to do. And Lord, I pray that as we examine this together, that you would work in each of our hearts and each of our lives to be faithful to you, to repent where we need to be, re to re be re repentant and to follow you and be faithful to you wherever you lead. I pray that you'll be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you see in this situation, what's happened here? Again, Stephen was martyred, stoned for the faith, the first martyr in the church. And because of that, many are scattered. And the, first, and the thing we see here is that as they went, they proclaimed the gospel. Proclaim as you go. In this sermon, we're going to see examples of what to do and what not to do, as often is the case with Scripture. You're going to look and see, like in today's Sunday school lesson, King Belshazzar was an example of what not to do, and Daniel was an example of what to do. In the same way, we see that here, what we should do and what we should not do. 
So the good example is that Philip, as he is scattered because of this persecution, preaches to others about Jesus, proclaiming as he went. And so we should also proclaim as we go. As the Scripture says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. As he gets to this place, as he gets to this village of the Samaritans, he's proclaiming the word of God, but he's also performing signs as he proclaimed the gospel. He was exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is something we see. Not only did the apostles perform miracles as Jesus did, but also those that are among the seven. And so this was certainly a sign for the beginning of the church. There is some uh, disagreement and controversy of sorts about what the place of miracles and these particular gifts of the Spirit are in the church. Certainly they were a sign for the beginning of the church, uh, and it was not limited to the apostles, as we see Philip here doing this. And we see others who are directly called, as we'll get to with Ananias, performing and doing things uh, that are supernatural through the Spirit. Though the only direct accounts are from the, that we have in Scripture of the apostles, the seven deacons, or those who are specifically called, there are not large reports of ordinary believers, as it were, unnamed believers, doing these sorts of, exercising these sorts of gifts of the Spirit. Though there are some verses that may suggest that that did happen, it is not reported that all or even most believers were involved in the more traditional understanding of miracles. Okay? And so the, the question about this is, are miracles for today? There's nothing in Scripture that says that they have ended, but uh, they are certainly less prevalent, and we also see at times that they can be abused today. We've all heard stories of the, the preachers that go and proclaim healing and, and, and end up making money off of that rather than seeking to be a servant of God. And they were also abused then and also corrected. We see the Apostle Paul in some of his letters dealing with the abuse of gifts of the Spirit. And in my opinion, the most credible reports I've ever heard of miraculous things take place in the places where the gospel is coming into, uh, it's, it's like the frontier of the gospel. As Stephen goes into, or as Philip goes into Samaria, the gospel is, the, the gospel is proclaimed and miracles accompany that. Uh, and so today, the most credible reports I've ever heard, although I've not witnessed any personally, are of places where the gospel is not proclaimed at all. And when it's proclaimed there, we see, we, we hear of that. And so how should we view the gifts of the Spirit? I am not an outright cessationist but I am not one that thinks that, as Paul says, we shouldn't long for those things, but we should long for the things that are, are practical and godliness and holiness in our lives. And so as he goes, he's, pre, he's, pre, he's performing miracles, but he's proclaiming the Word of God. So what is he preaching? He is preaching the same thing that Stephen preached, that the, that the Samaritans were sinners, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and, and he had done that work, and that we must respond, repent and believe that, and be saved. Right? So our sin, Christ's work, and our response. That's the simplest, one of the simplest ways to say the gospel. We sinned, God stepped in and did the work through the, through the work of Christ, and we have to respond to what God has done. So this is the message that he's preaching, that you're a sinner, that has been, that, that, needs to be saved, that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and you must respond to this work. That's what he's preaching as he goes. The same thing Stephen preached and was killed for is what Philip is preaching as he goes to the Samaritans. So what should we learn from him? What should we learn from this example that we should proclaim as we go? I think oftentimes it can be easy to think about evangelism in most strictly the terms of missions, 
right? This was not a mission trip for Philip. He was not like the Apostle Paul was later going on an intentional trip to seek out and proclaim the gospel. Do you know what happened? Stephen was murdered, and everybody kind of had to flee because they didn't want to be murdered as well. But as they went, they proclaimed the gospel. So in our lives, we should proclaim the gospel as we go. So where do we start with that? Start as close to where you go as you can. Do you have family members that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Or that aren't in church and need to be back into church? Do you have family members you need to proclaim to, to talk to about what you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have friends that don't know Jesus, that need to hear about what Jesus has done, or that are disconnected from church? Do you have neighbors that live directly around you that need to hear this news, that you need to go and talk to as you go through your life? What about coworkers, people you encounter as you work with them? And then the last thing, this is what Philip is doing, strangers. Part of our burden, part of our calling is to find ways to interact with people we don't know and tell them the good news of Jesus because those people need to hear the news as well. So with this, the challenge is don't talk yourself out of it. Don't talk yourself out of proclaiming as you go. I'll tell you, it's the easiest thing to do. To, to think, well, I'm not good enough, I don't know enough, uh, someone else could do this better, so I'm just not going to do it. I, I want to share something with you. Um, I, I've been convicted in this past week or so that I need to do better in explaining what I mean by proclaiming as we go, because the goal is that we all share our faith, that we can tell people why we've hoped in Jesus and lead them to Christ. But aside from that, there are ways that you can start small in being faithful to sharing the gospel. And I don't know that I've focused on that enough. So starting small, how can you proclaim as you go? Pray for them. Pray for yourself. If you are not in a place where you feel like you can share the gospel, or you're not even in a place where you feel like you're comfortable approaching someone about faith matters, the first thing you need to be doing is praying. If you remember back to the beginning of the book of Acts, when the, the apostles boldly, when Peter and John boldly proclaimed the truth to the Sanhedrin, then they're threatened not to preach in Jesus' name again, what do they do after that? They go and they pray for boldness. So even the greatest example, human example we have of being faithful to following Christ, they prayed for themselves to be bold and to share the gospel. So we should take that example. We should pray for ourselves, pray for opportunities, pray that God would help us to see people with his heart and with his eyes. That's a hard one, isn't it? Sometimes we get really angry with people. You ever been cut off in traffic and you didn't like it too much? You probably aren't loving that person very much, are you? But if we will pray and we'll begin to be convicted and let our heart to be softened toward people, that person that cuts us off isn't the, the problem in our day, but maybe a person that's having a bad day. A person may be in need of the gospel, as were these people. If we remember Stephen's sermon last week, at the end of it, as he's being stoned, what does he say to the Father? Don't hold this sin against them. Man, what a love for God. What a love for people that his murderers, he prayed to God for their forgiveness. So we should also pray for ourselves and our ability to love others. The next thing is to invite them to church or to invite them to talk to someone that maybe would be able to help explain things in a way you're not feeling confident with. I did not lead my first person to Christ until I was about 18 years old, I think. I was called to ministry when I was uh, 14, almost 15, 
So I had several years of, of really intense development seeking to follow God in my life before I personally led someone to Christ. And when I say that I don't want us to settle for inviting people to church or inviting them to talk to someone else, I want to explain that from my heart. Because when I was at youth camp, the year following uh, my, my call to ministry, I was sitting next to a friend of mine, and, and I could tell that, that the sermon had really impacted her and that she was really dealing with some things in, in regards to God. And I was kind of asking her what was going on, and I felt compelled to ask her, have you been saved? Do you, have you been saved? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And she said no. And that is a moment that I want every believer to have the opportunity to then say, well, let me tell you about him. Let me walk you through that. But do you know what I did in that moment? Let's take you to the youth pastor. Now, here's the thing. That's not wrong to do because she was led to Christ. It's not wrong to do that. If, if you're not in a place where you feel confident sharing your faith, I want you to do that. Invite people to church. Invite people to talk to me. I'd love to talk to anybody that is wanting to ask questions about God or someone else you know your Sunday school teacher, whoever it is. But I also want you to know the, the joy of being able to lead someone to Christ. It was the same situation several years later when I first led this other girl to Christ. We were at a, a youth retreat, and, and I was working it, and this person was coming for the first time on this retreat. And I could tell that God was working on her, and, and it was a time of kind of contemplation, and I asked her, you know, if she was okay, and, and I felt compelled again to ask her if she knew Christ as her Savior. And right before I was about to say, well, let's go get one of the pastors, I felt convicted and very firmly convicted that I was supposed to be the one to tell her the good news of Jesus. Someone else could have done it, but I also knew that it was my responsibility and my job as a Christian to share my faith, to tell this person about what it means to be saved. And that was the first person I led to Christ. And so invite people to church. Lead them to someone else that can talk to them. Give them a gospel tract that can explain to them. Say, hey, I'd love if you just read this. It's got the good news of what Jesus has done for you in it. It's, it's, it's the words of life. Do that. But don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself. Grow in your ability and boldness. Learn to tell your story. One of the, the most alarming things I think that we see within the church is how many people when asked to put the gospel into their own words, struggle with that process. What does it mean to be a Christian? How can a person be saved? There have been many times where I've asked that, and people struggle to put that into their words. They struggle to, to nail down the exact things. But if you ask them to, to affirm or deny the truths of the gospel, they can do it. So learn to tell your story. Why do you believe in Jesus. Learn to use evangelism's tools like share Jesus without fear or, or the three circles. There's many evangelism tools that can help you. And then through that, have gospel conversations. And, and here's the, the, the trick about that. Oftentimes, a gospel conversation will end in inviting someone to church. Because if someone isn't ready to make a decision for Christ, well, I know you're thinking about it. I'd love if you came to church with me to see what it's all about. And guess what? If they, do invite, if they do accept Christ, they need to be coming to church. So then in that same situation, you would invite them. So we need to be proclaiming as we go, whether it's inviting someone to church, praying that we'll even have the boldness to do that, or sharing the gospel directly. We need to be doing that. We need to be faithful in doing that. But alongside that, the example of Philip also shows us that our words should be accompanied by our works. Now, here's the deal. You may not be going around today after church and casting out demons, 
performing miracles, healing people, but your actions still show the authenticity of your faith. The miracles that Philip performed was not so that people would think that Philip was so great. It was so that they would see that the hand of God was on him and that they might believe the message that he proclaimed. The miracles in Scripture are never about the elevation of the person, except for Jesus, because he is the one that needs to be elevated. It's about the evidence and the truth of what's being said. If you think of the Scripture, sometimes it's for deliverance, sometimes it's for those things, like the Red Sea parting. It is so that people will be led through, but also what does that serve to? What does that serve to show? The Israelites following Moses should be very aware that the hand of God is on Moses, that when he raises that staff, the waters part. Because I doubt they've ever seen that before. So we may not be doing miraculous things, but our actions should show the authenticity of our faith. Think of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And here's what I want you to understand. Apologetics are great. Learning to defend your faith, learning more about the Bible is great. Uh, but as you do those things, a life marked by the Holy Spirit is still the best proof of our faith to the lost. You've probably heard those stories, and, and hopefully you've heard that said to you. What's so different about you? You don't, you don't act like these other people act. When bad things happen, you still are able to have joy in your life. When, when people are rude to you, you don't respond in rudeness. You know what that is? That's the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life. And when that fruit of the Spirit is evident, the message you proclaim about hope in Christ is so much more profound and has so much more power. If you just got done screaming at the guy that cut you off, the person that's riding with you probably isn't going to listen to you as much about the peace and joy found in Christ because you're not really exhibiting that in your life. A life marked by the Holy Spirit is still the best proof of our faith to the lost. But when we proclaim the gospel as Philip did, the best result is that people will respond. And when they do, we should celebrate and examine. When the people responded... They were baptized and accepted as brothers and sisters. Uh, but they celebrate that. They celebrate and examine what's going on. Even Simon the sorcerer was included in that number. Now remember here, Simon had previously been the guy that's doing all the things they're amazed with, and everybody looks to. They said that he is the power of, of the Most High God. That's what they're saying about Simon the sorcerer, who is not following God. And here comes Philip performing real miracles. I think a lot of Simon's were deception. But even Simon the sorcerer was included in the number that believed and was baptized. And because of that, we should celebrate the salvation of believers. When the gospel is presented accurately and clearly, we should generally accept this response as valid. Though simple questions, and through simple questions, we can identify if people understand what they're doing. Although, as we see here, the Bible doesn't mention that. The Bible does not mention that, that Philip then went to each of them and asked them, well, do you understand these things? Do you understand this point, this point, this point? They are received and they are baptized. The Bible typically seems to take the approach of accept the profession, baptize, and their faith will be sorted out. Now, there's a difference in the culture here, and there's a difference in the audience. If people that have previously been completely opposed to the message of the gospel, receive it, 
And if it's going to cost them something in their life, there's a lot less reason to doubt the genuineness of that salvation, the genuineness of that profession. When, when there are people in the uh, places in, in Africa and in Asia where they proclaim the gospel, and the people there know that if they profess Christ, their family is going to disown them, the government might, might persecute them, put them in jail, or, or kill them. When that person responds, I think, they, I think they're genuine. If a person responds in the face of great adversity, I think that's genuine. That's more like what is going on here. The Samaritans are completely opposed to what the Jewish people believe, but at the same time, they're also opposed to what Christ is, is preaching. So when Philip preaches that and they respond, there's less of a, of a reason to wonder, is this real? Is this a genuine faith they have? But there are times when questioning a little bit, asking some for, for some further clarification is helpful. Anytime you have a real reason to be concerned. So for an example, with, when young children profess faith in Christ, when, it, when a young child professes faith in Christ, we want to make sure that they understand what it means. They understand what it means to be sinful. They understand the work of Christ. And they understand what it means to make Him their Lord and Savior. There have been many conversations I've had with Eliza, and, and she expresses in belief and love for God, and it, it warms my heart. But there's also been times where I ask some further questions, and I see that there's a little bit more development that needs to take place. And, and so when young children come to faith or profess faith, it's good to ask questions so they don't have a false sense of security. People that are well acquainted with the gospel, we want to make sure you've heard it before. Why is this time different for you? Or people that have been in church and they profess a new faith, maybe their last faith was not. Maybe they're just being more dedicated. I've had this conversation many times where a person that was, had believed and was baptized now thinks maybe they didn't know Christ. That's possible. I think that we're dealing with that with Simon here. But it's also possible that now you're being convicted to follow him more faithfully, and you were saved to begin with. I think we also should question when people come at the same time as others. One of the most common stories I've heard of people that genuinely realize later in life they were never saved are people that went down because all their friends went down, maybe at a VBS or a revival of some sort. They can express clearly they had no idea what they were doing, but their friends went, and so they went and they prayed the prayer and they were baptized. And we should also uh, question when people respond in a way, when the message was presented improperly and in a confusing way. I think funerals are a, a time when people are very receptive to the gospel, but it's also a time I've heard the gospel presented inaccurately. If you ever want to see grandma again, make sure you pray this prayer and get saved. That is not what salvation is about. I do believe that we will be reunited with believers that have gone before us, but that is not the reason that we get saved. We have to understand our sin and what Christ has done. And beyond that, anytime you have a real reason to be concerned, you should ask further questions. And so these times, there are times where questioning that may be necessary. But there are also times where it may not be necessary. A person who is firmly opposed to the gospel, responding when it will cost them something, when the gospel was presented clearly and the person's response is in keeping with that and they express evident sincerity. And even though we accept responses and celebrate, we should also examine the lives of their, uh, and the fruit from their salvation. Because when someone is saved, we will see that evidence in their life. So we see this in this, this, uh, this process. The apostles hear about what has happened in this village. And so what do they do? Philip and, or, or John and Peter go to investigate, to see what has happened. 
They're not doubting it. They're not being skeptical or cynical. We should not have that spirit about us that when we hear of the movement of God, we're cynical immediately, but they go to see what's going on. And they pray for the believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit when they lay their hands on them. And so they see this evidence of their salvation. The Holy Spirit is given to these people that have believed. But they also encountered Simon. And Simon, when he sees these things happening, comes up to Peter and says, Hey, I want to pay you so you can give me the ability to give people the Holy Spirit when I lay my hands on them. And when you, when you first read this passage, it can be easy to misunderstand what he's asking for. He's not paying to receive the Holy Spirit. He is asking to pay to have the ability to do what Peter and John are doing, to lay their hands on people and to confer the Holy Spirit, to give it to others. Now, this is where I said, I think there are things that are very clear in the Bible are for a certain people. The apostles, the 12, were given distinct, clear authority within the church that I don't think extends beyond them. They were given the ability to make decisions and to give binding authority that we don't have the authority today. There is no one, I believe, that has that authority today to act as the apostles acted with that level of authority. And so we see them come, and I believe that the reason this happens is so that they may see the genuine faith and the movement of God in the Samaritans. We have to understand here that when Christ came, when, when he was raised and they were waiting and the Holy Spirit comes, all of that movement, the day of Pentecost, the, the day surrounding that is in Jerusalem and is among Jewish believers, Jewish people accepting that Jesus is the Messiah. As we get further in Acts, we see them scatter. We see Philip preaching to the Samaritans. And now Peter and John are confronted with the fact Samaritans are receiving the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit. Later, we're going to see how that extends to the Gentiles, those even further outside of the faith. But Simon is seeking essentially to buy the rights of the office of the apostles. He's offering money for this power that only the apostles have, this ability and this, this authority that's where the name of the sin of simony comes from. Simony is the sin where you're seeking to purchase a position from within the church. Well, if you give me this much money, I'd like to have, if I give you this money or I build this building, maybe you can make, give me a nice position of authority within the church. That's the sin of simony. But Peter responded harshly to Simon. Your heart is not right before God. You are poisoned by bitterness. You are bound by wickedness. And this brings up a question. Was Simon saved. What we do know is that faith saves, not works. Faith is what saves us, not works. And so what does that mean? There are two options. Either Simon was truly saved and really struggling with his faith, really bound up by some stuff, or Simon was never truly saved but went through the motions. Faith is what saves, not praying a prayer and being baptized. Okay, so, so imagine this scenario. I don't believe, I don't believe that Simon was saved. I believe he was lost. I believe he saw the, the miracles of Philip, the attention that Philip got. And guess what? That was the attention he used to get. That was the, the things he used to do. But this guy's doing it better in a way he couldn't imagine doing. And he's got more attention. And these people are following him. So he wants to be like that. And so he sees them all following and being baptized. So guess what he does? He falls right in line. And he's among these people, and he follows Philip, amazed by what he's doing. He didn't want to lose his attention and power. 
His actions could not save him. Only the faith in the work of Christ could do that. And so we should be aware that not all who pray a prayer and are baptized are saved. That's a, a hard reality. We don't like to think about that, but that is a reality that sometimes people will make a profession. They may acknowledge with their mouth, but they deny it with their heart. There is no genuine saving faith at times. And in that situation, when there's no faith, praying a prayer, being baptized, doesn't do anything for your situation. doesn't do anything for where your heart is before God. doesn't do anything for the sin that you're bound by. And so we need to understand that our works will reveal our heart. Our works will reveal our heart. The believers who received the Holy Spirit showed the evidence by that sign of the Holy Spirit that, that they had been saved. This was evidence to those that were there. And it would, it would also produce fruit in their life beyond that. Peter calls out Simon because his actions do not indicate a person that knows Christ. At the very least, they don't indicate someone that's following him faithfully. I want you to understand that. It is my opinion that Simon was not saved. This passage is not clear. Peter saw the intentions of Simon's heart. He said, your heart is not right before God. That sounds like Peter saying, your heart is not right. You have not been saved. He calls Simon out. But why did he do that? Not to condemn Simon, but to give him an opportunity to truly repent. Your heart is not right. You are poisoned by bitterness. You're bound by wickedness. Pray to God so that he might forgive the intentions of your heart. What's he doing? He's saying, you don't get it. You need to repent. And so we should be calling out, if we're going to learn from this example, we should be identifying our life, looking at it to see if we have evidence of that, and we should be calling out inconsistencies. This is a hard thing to do. That's what today's Sunday school lesson was about, speaking boldly when you don't want to. It's hard to go to someone and tell them, hey, the things you're doing right now don't line up with the faith you profess. You, you say that you believe this, but in everything you do in your life, you're, you, you don't, you're not showing that. It's hard to do that. But the intention of that is not to break that person down, but to help them to see what they need to do to follow God faithfully. Speaking the truth in love as we do it. And the part about this is, that is hard is we don't see how Simon really responds. We see him saying, pray for me that what you've said, pray to the Lord for me that, that, that nothing you've said might happen to me. He's asking Peter to pray for him so that it won't happen. And it's still kind of hard there. Is that fear of punishment or is that genuine repentance? It doesn't really say. It doesn't say what happens to Simon after that. We have no word. Now, there are uh, extra-biblical stories, stories that come after, records from church fathers that came later that seem to indicate that he was a heretic, that he kind of never really got it. He, he kind of was a heretic. And there's others that say maybe he became a church father. So it's hard to know. I don't think that's the point. Our, the point is that our response reveals our reality. The fact that we don't know Simon's fate is not the point. The point is that we should be able to look at him and understand what he ought to do. He ought to repent and follow God faithfully. And only he knows whether he truly had believed in the message of Christ or whether he had not. And that's the same for us today. Only you can know whether you have truly placed your faith in Christ for salvation. Only you can know that. Others can call out inconsistencies, but only you will know, is this a way, are you a wayward Christian that needs to get on the right track? Or are you a person that never knew Christ to begin with? Only you can answer that. 
But the point is, is that our response reveals our reality. Last week, we did see the response. We saw how the Sanhedrin and those that listened to Stephen responded. And they killed him. And they showed that their heart was far from God. They did not receive his message. But we do see in this someone who did receive a message. Peter and John, as they saw this example to the Samaritans, what does it say they do as they went back to Jerusalem? They preached in many of the villages of the Samaritans. And so they saw the evidence of God's movement among the Samaritans, and they continued to preach among them because they saw that God's hand was even for the Samaritans. So the question you have to face today, the question we have to realize that today is, as you look at your life, as you look at your faith, as you, as you reflect on your salvation, you reflect on your baptism, and your life since then, is there evidence is there consistent evidence, the evidence of the Holy Spirit within your life? Again, that doesn't mean you're, you're performing miracles, but the conviction, the, the constant pulling toward God. Is there evidence of, of how you've responded? Are you following Him more faithfully than you were? Or today, do you have to reflect and see that you haven't been? And what is the reason if you haven't been? If your life does not reflect what you think it should look like, what is the reason? Was your faith genuine? Now, for some, that might be hard to think about. If you were quite young at the time, it's hard to think back to your state of mind. But do you have a, did you have a genuine faith in Christ, or was it based on something else? The actions of others? The, the promise of something without realizing what the promise entailed? Did you understand the gospel? Only you can answer that. So how have you responded? Have you believed genuinely or have you just gone through the motions? Is there evidence of your salvation? And if there is, and I pray that there is, are you proclaiming as you go? Are you taking part in this gospel work that we are all called to? Inviting people to church, praying that you'll have the boldness to do that, to step out, to invite people to hear the gospel, to talk to someone to hear the gospel. Or sharing the gospel, going to that next step of sharing the gospel? And are you calling others to faithfulness, calling out inconsistencies in a loving way for their good and not for their demise? If you've been called out, how have you responded to that? Have you responded so that you might be aligned with God? Or have you turned your, turned your back to those who have rebuked you in a loving and gentle way? Wherever you are today, I believe that, that each of us needs to respond. We each need to look at our lives and see what God is calling us to do if we're being faithful, to be convicted by the fact that we need to be sharing and proclaiming as we go. Because I can, I can almost guarantee you if, you, if you follow Christ, there's been a day where you felt that tug on your heart to say something, to invite them to church, to ask them if they know Jesus. And you probably didn't. At some point, you didn't. Our goal should be that when that tug comes on our heart, we're faithful and obedient. And if we don't feel that tug, we ought to pray that we feel it more. Are you seeking to live faithfully, calling others to faithfulness, exemplifying the Spirit in your life? And the hardest question that some may have to face is, have you genuinely believed or are you going through the motions? Or have you believed for the first time at all? Wherever you are, whatever aspect you are at, whatever place in your walk with God you are, 
I would call you to respond to him this morning. And in that time, the altar is open so that you can respond as God's leading you. I am down front for prayer to to walk with you through things if you need to uh, prayer for something or if you need to ask him to save you for the first time. Wherever you are, allow God to move within your life this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would just move in our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would show us exactly what it is that you're calling us to do that we can follow the example of of Philip, that we can go and proclaim as we go, that we can preach your truth with boldness. We can follow the example of Peter, that we can hold others to the standard and call them to faithfulness. And Father, I pray that you would help us to to heed Simon as a warning of of going through the motions and and doing the actions of, of following you without truly knowing you in our heart. And Father, I pray that if anyone does not know you today, that they would respond to you with genuine faith, and that we could celebrate with them. pray that you'll be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.